Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. is an author of 10 books, I'll say that again, of 10 books on human sexuality, technology, and relationship intimacy, including Sex Addiction 101, Out of the Doghouse, and Prodependence, which is the latest work that we're going to be focusing on today, and they all are available on Amazon. Over the past two decades, Rob has created multiple residential and IOP treatment programs, all focused on the intersection of adult attachment disorders and the addictions. His top 10 global sexual health podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, can be found on Apple, Spotify, and all podcast outlets. I also want to say that Rob and I went to grad school together at UCLA a long time ago. But you were ahead of me. (laughs) (laughs) 12 months. But I'm so excited to have Rob join us today because this is a little bit of a reunion. We've, we've seen each other obviously through the years, mm-hmm. but this is our second time I was on his podcast and now I finally have found a, a way to, to lure him to my podcast. And it's like a double date. It is kind of like a double date for sure. And you know, the latest book, Prodependence, is really a, a a groundbreaking one. And so I'm really, really pleased to be able to share more in depth about this latest work and, and its importance to you, Rob. So welcome, Robert Weiss, Dr. Robert Weiss. You can just call me Rob. We've known each other for a while. That's true. This is true, Rob. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving me a chance to talk about prodependence a little bit. Absolutely. And the thing about prodependence is that it's a word that is starting to spread because I know with my clients and colleagues, people are, are, are learning about it. But this is really an opportunity to, to really expand on how this came about, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if you could start, Rob, by just sharing with us how this originated. How did it get born? I always felt that the addiction field in the last, all throughout the, its development in the last 30 or 40 years really gets addicts down. You know, I think the addiction field has got us from the beginning knows how to nail us, get us moving. You know, there are all kinds of methods and opportunities and they've continued to develop over the last 35 years where we have smart recovery and, and we have uh, a harm reduction and we have uh, EMDR and somat- all kinds of therapies and different things we do with addicts. But I, I never really felt comfortable with the treatment that we offered families and partners and parents. To me, the treatment of codependency always felt um, a little bit shaming, a little bit blaming, a little bit like, what are you doing loving this person? Because if you were smarter or healthier, you would have picked someone else. 
And that just, you know, th that whole way of looking at self-development, I need to separate from you and focus on my own self-actualization. I think that's really the kind of therapy we were doing in the 1980s and 90s. And so this whole model of codependency, I found and believe to be too analytic, um, overly confusing, definitely not something that I would want to bring to someone who's in a crisis because it's complex. And generally, I found that spouses and parents with codependency end up feeling somehow blamed for the love that they've given. You see, I know when someone who loves me nags me about my drinking, they're not doing it out of trauma or trauma repetition or because their dad was this or that. They're nagging me because they don't want me to drink because my drinking is ruining their life and my life. So I decided to take codependency and flip it on its side and say, what if? All these behaviors we've been saying are bad, enabling, enmeshment, nagging, you know, overreacting. Over what if they're not bad at all? What if all the behaviors that we see, right or wrong, good or bad, useful or not, from someone who loves an active addict are simply taking, taken with a focus on wanting to help and wanting to love? What if the reason our partners and family members get so crazy, act so crazy, and all of that isn't because they are crazy at all, but because we have driven them crazy by being in relationship with someone like us who they love, and no matter what they do, no matter how they try, they can't get us better, and they watch us fading away in front of us. See, I think if you had cancer, Andrew, and I like loved you and took care of you and worked double time and took three jobs and stopped doing self-care and became annoy a nagging, annoying person because I had given up my life to care for you, that people would bring me flowers and casseroles and offer me nights off. But if you have an addiction, I'm called enabling and mesh. I'm called all these nasty names and I'm told to back off. The difference between the time when codependency was created and where we live now in mental health is that I believe in mental health today, our focus is attachment which means it's not simply my ability to achieve or be successful or do really well. I mean, that brings us like, I don't know, at its extreme, maybe Bill Clinton, incredibly capable, but emotionally kind of not so much. Today, we're interested in the power of our connections. I'm a better man, not just because I stopped using, because I focus on my marriage, my relationships, my family, my kids and my community. So in this age of attachment, I think it is wrong and problematic to blame or ask anyone to ever examine the reasons why they did whatever they did in an attempt to love someone into being well. Why don't we just say that whatever they did, whether it was bringing home bottles or nagging or yelling or whatever, that that was all done out of love and an attempt to restore the harmony and, and the connection that had been there before. And if we look at it that way, then we stop pathologizing partners, we can begin to celebrate them. Hmm. And I, I heard you use the word love several times. And I'm wondering if you could expand on what that means for the family member or for the loved one to, to really come from a, a place of love or to focus on the love rather than having the shame and blame of, of somehow there's something wrong with, with taking care of their loved one. Well, okay, if you don't mind, I'll use an example, because I want to use an example that comes like right out of the heartland of codependency, because hmm. I think that this would absolutely produce a particular reaction if you were in working in that model. So let's say I have a woman that I'm working with, and 
She's married. She's in her 30s. She's got a couple of kids at home. And her husband is drinking very heavily. In fact, he's gotten a couple of DUIs. He's lost a job. She found that he was drinking, taking the kids home from school for a couple of times. So what she decided to do in, in, in working so hard to figure out this problem, you know, she nagged, she complained, couldn't make it better. So she said to her husband one day, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring home a cold bottle of vodka every day at four o'clock and I'm going to put it on the dining room table. And as long as you work your day job and don't work drunk, as long as you don't get a DUI and you don't drive home with my kids in the car drunk, you can drink at four o'clock in the evening all you want. I'm just taking the car keys. Now, if that woman were to come into treatment a year or two later saying, well, it kind of worked, but then he, he started drinking during the day and, and, and then it wasn't working anymore. And now I need help. I would imagine that people working under codependency would use like enabling words for her, like enabling and meshed supporting the addiction, you know, all of that, I would say that she was doing what we call harm reduction in her own home. With her limited resources, she was able to keep that husband sober during the day, get those kids to school, and keep that man employed until the disease took over, and then he could no longer control it during the day. I'm not going to call her enabling. I'm going to say she's a hero, and how clever that was, and how smart that was, and how impressed I am with that solution. It wasn't a solution that got him sober. But it was a solution that came out of love and practicality in an attempt to keep her family life going forward. Why would I ever tell her that that was done out of anything other than love? Absolutely. So just to go back to the idea of shaming and blaming, I, I'm hearing you say that in the past, clinicians often pointed the finger at the caregiver as, as doing something wrong, um, not doing enough, doing too much, whatever the case may be. And I'm hearing that there's a different kind of focus on pro-dependence. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of those specific elements that can be sort of the touchstones of what pro-dependence is all about. Well, if we're going to take a clean sheet approach to the treatment of partners and spouses and parents of addicts, let me just start with this. Um, you do know, Andrew, like I do, codependency and codependence has never been a diagnosis. It's never been insurance billable. It's never been validated. It's never been really proven. And it's been around forever. But what is it if it's never risen to the level of something we can actually identify and treat? It can't be more than a pop culture notion, which I think is what codependency has been all along, is a pop culture notion. And we could talk about that at another time. What I'm interested in is um, how can we leave a partner and a family member who's involved with an addict feeling supported at every step of their journey. So when they come in to see us, not mentioning, so in other words, I would never even think about as a therapist of an, a partner or a family member of an addict about their trauma history. I wouldn't ask about their trauma history. I wouldn't really be asking that much about their history at all. Because I already know that if you love someone and they're failing, like through alcoholism, and someone says to you, um, um, what are you trying to do to help them? Or, or what, what's in your history that once you start examining the person who's been the helper, the helper starts to feel like, oh, I guess maybe I am responsible for this. Or if I'd had a different background or if I would acted differently, somehow this person wouldn't drink or use. And there is, as you and I know, nothing that any partner, spouse, or parent can ever do to make an addict use. The idea 
I think that I'm trying to remove in part is that the partner or the parent or anyone in the family has any responsibility at all for someone else's addiction. You may make someone angry. You may say someone sad. You may make someone furious, but they can go for a walk. That decision to drink or use is on the addict at their recovery. So there's been for far too long, I think, a tying together of the addicts are as sick as their partners. The partners are as sick as the addict. If he married her, he's sick as she is. I don't think so. I think we got it wrong. I think we need to look at what the problem is. It's the person who's using, the problem, the person who's drinking, the person who has the active problem, and look at everyone else around them as reacting to the problem. Forget whether they're reacting in a way that mirrors past trauma. Who wouldn't react when the love you fail, love person you, sorry, who wouldn't react when the person you love is failing in front of you? And I don't understand, Andrew, where did we get this notion that everyone who married an addict or an alcoholic should already know how to manage that problem? Because if they bring them a bottle or they assist them in any way, they're immediately called enabling. Well, who taught any partner? You know, most partners I meet didn't go to college for treating addicts. So if you're married to one, why would you assume they would know how to help them? I would assume they would just do the best they can. And sometimes the best they can isn't helpful. Sometimes it's actually contributing to the problem. But that doesn't mean they did it for any other reason, but then it was their best attempt to make things better. And I would never tell them otherwise. So... I hear something so vital in what you're saying. You're you're not only removing the shame and the blame from the from the family member or or loved one, but you're saying that it's not their fault and 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 they're not responsible for the addict's feelings, not responsible for the addict's behaviors. You're really separating it and and really there's kind of a boundary issue in that. And I know when I read your book what really caught my eye was the idea of developing impeccable boundaries and i know Mm -hmm. i'm adding the word impeccable but i like that word because because i i I think there's something about self-care that is truly an opportunity for the loved one who comes in rather than sitting down and taking a trauma history and And i agree with you i mean my but my thought would be let's say i'm treating the wife of an alcoholic can i get her to engage in self-care because She's done such an amazing job helping him and really hung in there and tried so hard and done everything that she really needs a bit of a break now. And we can we can redirect her into ways to ha- that are more helpful and ways to take care of herself. Is that more appealing or is it more appealing to say, well, you know, you're really a mess and you really have a lot of problems. And, you know, your problems are probably contributing to this addiction. You need as much help as they do. The problem with all that thinking, Andrew, and I think Mm -hmm. I can explain it pretty easily, Mm -hmm. is that codependency views partners and parents as addicts themselves. Mm. I believe that partners and family members are obsessed with the problem. If, If my wife had cancer, I would read every book. I would go to every activity. I would learn as much as I could. I would give as much as I could. I would give over my life to try to help her with cancer. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be any different in the addictions. What? So what I want to add to what you said, Andrew, there mm-hmm. is something else about codependence that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that hanging in there and loving a troubled person is a strength. Mm, that's beautiful. Codependence says... Why did you hang in there? You saw how troubled they were. You should have left a long time ago. The fact that you stayed means there's something wrong with you. Hmm. 
I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Plus, it also says to the addict, codependency says, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so listen, addict, you're really sick. And the reason your partner stayed with you is because they're really sick, too. But if they were better, they never would have picked you. And when they get better, if you don't get better, they're going to pick someone else. And I don't think it's like that at all. I don't think the partner hung in there because you repeat their trauma. I think our partners hang in there because they love us mm-hmm. and they're committed to us. And they're watching us fail in front of them, and they would do anything, as you would, to help a failing family member recover. They just don't always know the right things to do. And then when they try, we've been blaming them for it. Mm-hmm. That's just not the right way to go. So if we can circle back to the idea of clinicians who do have the idea that there is some kind of traumatic background, right? Mm. We both know that there's a lot of folks out there, there that are still holding to that old kind of model. Oh, this is all new. This is brand new. Most people are still doing the treatment I just described, for sure. But what would you say to them if if, if a therapist were to say to you, Mm. but but I've been doing this for 20 years and this seems to be working and and I want to stick to it. How would you describe to them what what could really be more refreshing and different and healing? Well, first of all, I'm not in the business of convincing people that what I do is right and what they do isn't. Um, What I'm interested in is science and research. So we have a number of groups going in organizations where they're doing pro-dependence with a group of 12 women and they're doing codependence with a group of 12 women. And I'm watching and observing and recording how that work is going. And mm. so what I see in the work of pro-dependence is that partners move faster. They don't have to understand. So, so let me back up. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I looked at, and by the way, you have to understand, I did my PhD research in codependency. I read every book. I read every article. I I saw how the history of that movement came and ran and now is sort of running out. Mm. And um, uh, and I have no idea what I was going to say about that. So you probably need to ask another question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I love about what you're saying, Rob, is, is, you know, the historical context probably as well as most people or as better. Yeah, I mean, I studied it. (laughs) Right, right. So you were immersed in that. And just for the sake of our listeners, could you share just a, a nutshell version of, of where that all came from and, and, and sure. why it's evolved in the way that it has and, and how you are introducing just a very different and, and um, more healing approach than, than what we've been doing all these years? Well, I would say if someone wants to understand the history of codependency and how we ended up being with it being problematic, which was not intended by the progenitors of it, they should go out and buy a copy of Prodependence. It's in Amazon. It's called Prodependence Moving Beyond Codependency. And it's a really solid read about the history of the last 40 years in mental health and how we got to where we did. So mm-hmm. I don't think I could go through that, but I think what might be more useful is simply to say what I think has been problematic and what doesn't work and why, which is what I wanted to look at and what I did in my research is um, what is the state of mind of most people who are coming in to see you or me for therapy when they have a loved one who's addicted Mm. and whether that loved one has been addictively using for three years or five or six weeks. I asked a question to about 75 therapists, all of whom had tremendous experience in or I could actually say they had at least three years of supervised experience in the addictions. They had had training in codependency. Mm -hmm. And this was my dissertation research. I asked many questions of these people. But one of the questions I asked of these addiction specialists is, do you believe that the spouse or the parent or the partner of an active addict is in a crisis 
when they come to see you in the first 60 days of treatment. Hmm. So someone's come to see you, they've got an addict in their life, do you believe, and the addict is actively addicted, parent, son, brother, wife, whatever, do you think that that person who's coming to see you is in a crisis? 91% of the respondents said, yes, that person is in a crisis. So that made my life so much easier. Right, right. I just went to crisis counseling literature as a therapist, and I said, gee, what do we do with people? First of all, what is the state of mind of someone who's in a crisis? Do our partners and family members of addicts fit that criteria? And there are three of them. One is that they're regular, someone in a crisis, number one, their regular uh, way of coping has failed. So going to the gym, seeing friends, you know, that's failed. That's not enough for the situation they're in. I think that's true for most of these folks. Then another sign of crisis is that your thinking and your emotions are out of balance. Mm. So you're either all in your emotional reactivity or you're all thinking, but there's really not a good mix of both. And what I see in family members of addicts is a lot of emotional reactivity and not a lot of thinking. And the third thing is, for a crisis, is there profound dysfunction in you or in your family? Mm -hmm. So I check all three boxes for partners and family members of addicts. They're in a crisis. And when you look at crisis counseling methods, which I did in pro-dependence, they're very simple. It says people in a crisis, like I read all the literature. I didn't write these words. Mm -hmm. People in a crisis have difficulty with complex concepts. Mm. Stick to simple things. Mm People in a crisis need short-term, quick answers, hope, and direction. Don't do anything complex. Don't ask them a lot about the past, as those things will be confusing and upsetting to them. They're dealing with an immediate thing that's in front of them. You should, too. Mm -hmm. So everything I read about crisis literature is anti-codependency. It's be in the here and now, focus on how they're doing, give them lots of support, don't ask about the past, offer hope. That's what prodependence is. So Mm. you asked me a question earlier. What about the trauma? Right. So many people who grow up and end up marrying an addict do have trauma. So many people who grow up and end up marrying non-addicts have trauma too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The problem is, and this goes directly to codependency, is that there is this idea, and it's right, that when your partner or your child is in an addictive crisis, when your kid is using, when your parent is using, when your loved one is using, that you're going to be in a crisis and you're going to act kind of weird. That's true. All people in a crisis act kind of weird. Right. But we know from mental health that people in a crisis tend to, our word is regress. They go backward a little bit in their mental health. So if you've got an eight-year-old kid and he had a fight with another kid at school, he might wet the bed, even though he hasn't wet the bed since he was four. That experience overwhelmed him emotionally and he regressed. It's not unusual for people in a crisis of any kind to regress into earlier states that they were ways they were acting when they were growing up, ways they acted when they were experiencing early trauma. So when I am dealing with a partner, spouse of a parent of an active addict, and I see them doing crazy things, mm-hmm. is that evidence of their past trauma? Probably. Is that a sample of what they grew up with? And could that be something they might work on? Sure. But my question and what I say in prodependence is it's about timing. You told me that these people are in a crisis. If you're in a crisis, it is not the time to work on your trauma history. Mm-hmm. There's enough trauma here and now to work on if you have someone who loves an active addict. Get them through the crisis of the addiction, meaning their partner is now sober or they're no longer in relationship to that person. Mm-hmm. Their child has gotten sober 
or their child is living with them and they're tolerating the crisis, the addiction. But you're not going to be able to work on someone's emotional issues while they're in a crisis. We already know that. So the key to all of this is understanding that partners and family members who come to us, who love an addict, who is active in their, they have been living in a crisis for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to make that crisis better for a long period of time, and nothing is helping. They are getting more depleted, more despairing, more upset. They're getting more shrill, more loud, more naggy. Mm-hmm. Many partners and parents will say to us, "I became the part. I became someone I never wanted to be." Mm-hmm. But did they become that person they never wanted to be because they've been in a traumatic situation for months or years that they're unable to resolve or because that traumatic or or because they grew up with trauma? Exactly. (laughs) And I would vote for number one. Mm -hmm. Sure. So one thing I'm hearing you focus on is is how prodependence is, in a sense, has that crisis oriented focus. But I'm wondering, my friend, it's a social work focus. May I just say? (laughs) We know our focus, you and me, when we went to school, Uh they taught us be where the client is. Mm -hmm. Understand when I have a wife coming into treatment whose husband has been drinking alcoholically and whatever he's been doing. By the time she gets him into a treatment center, she's feeling like, oh, thank God, I finally got him here. She goes to that family group expecting that she's people are going to say, good job. You finally got into treatment. It's been a long road. Mm -hmm. And then we take her down piece by piece, measure by measure, it makes no sense to me at all. Mm, Absolutely. So to say more about whether the prodependence model is just at the beginning, or is it something that can be throughout one's recovery and healing? Uh, Well, this is a good question, Andrew. You're so sweet. Ask me (laughs) what what does prodependence mean? Because Mm. I haven't actually said that. Yeah. So I don't think anyone is ever prodependent. It's not a label. Mm, and okay. I don't think ever, and I think we are all, in essence, we're all pro-dependent, meaning we move toward people we love and we try to help them. Ultimately, what I think I'm trying to say, and I said this in the last chapter of the book, which is called Twos Don't Marry Sevens. <laughs> and the reason I named it that is because a lot of people will say, oh, well, she's just going to end up with someone just like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if she leaves him, if she doesn't work on herself. And, you know, the thing is, that's true for all of us. We are all going to run into people who are at a similar level of our emotional processing and functioning. And that is who we're going to be attracted to. Because let's face it, if you're a two emotionally and you're kind of a mess and you're a lot of drama, you look at someone who's an eight and they have it all together and you think, God, that person's boring and you don't want to date them. And if you're an eight and you're looking at a two, you think, wow, that person's way too much drama. I'm Mm. not going to. So twos never marry eights. Right. What I wanted to say in the book is, and this is to me the essence of prodependence. And and really it's, I will say, advantage over codependence is that I believe that the troubled couple heals best if they stay together. Mm. I think that me and I am, you know, the Sandra, a troubled person. I might be a three or a four on the scale. (laughs) Not so much anymore. It's okay. (laughs) We're we're all healing. But here's the deal. You've been in a long-term relationship. I've been in a long-term relationship. I believe that both myself and my partner are better people, stronger people, healthier people, because we have been in a healing journey together. And I like this idea that together, you know, by myself, I, if I have issues and I go to therapy and I go to some 12-step meetings and I'm a two, maybe I'll make it to a four. But I think with a spouse, I might make it to a six. Together, we might become sixes. 
So instead of avoiding that person, that, that sort of troubled person, you know, you're going to end up dating, just make sure they're already in therapy. They're mm-hmm. already in a 12 step program mm-hmm. and they already have self-awareness. That mm-hmm. way you, t- you two can grow even faster together. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, someone said to me, someone said to me a while ago when they read Prodependence, they said, and this made me sad. They said, you know, I think a lot of marriages might have been saved in the 90s had we not used codependency. Mm. And on some level, codependency's strong emphasis on attachment, on detachment mm-hmm. and self-actualization, even at the expense of the relationship, I think was wrong. I think if you're not being physically abused and you're not being mentally abused and this person is trying to get better, then you probably pick them for the right reason. And you have every reason in the world to stay because when they're not using and they're not drinking and they're working on themselves, maybe you two can have what you always wanted together. Mm-hmm. It's just going to take a while. Mm. It's so poignant what you're saying. I, I, I really heard the word detachment because as we know, in, in programs like Al-Anon, there are these slogans, detach with love. And it's not that the love goes away, but there's so much focus on the detachment and on having these boundaries that actually can be really rigid. And what I heard you say is that you're really talking about building and sustaining secure attachment. I'm saying that what the symptoms that we call codependency come out of uh, sincere, healthy attachment. I see. That if you have failed and I love you, all that crazy stuff that we blame partners for, that is a natural, you're going to nag, you're going to complain, you're going to hide bottles, you're going to do all that stuff because you love me and you want me back and you want what we had together back and you'll do anything, including sacrifice yourself on the altar of our relationship. You know, Andrew, I've worked with parents who were told, just let your kid work it out on the street. They're mm. not going to get so, you know, That's right. who wants to be the therapist that has that kid die on the street exactly. and their parents were told to let them go. I'm never going to be the therapist to tell you to let that kid go or let that loved one go unless there's profound abuse going on. And then we need to look at it. Otherwise I'm going to assume you've had a great things that have tied you together. There's a reason that you've stayed together and it's probably a good one. And we're going to look for all the good things we can move back into as this illness fades away. Mm. Absolutely. You you know, when I read your book, Rob, one of the things I was left with wasn't the details, but was just hopefulness and a sense Mm -hmm. of actually kind of like positive psychology in some ways, you know, we weren't, we weren't, uh, when we were in school, there was no positive psychology, you know, (laughs) but, but what, what, um, an addition to the literature and to the kind of ways that we conceptualize healing. And, And I was thinking about things like learned optimism and gratitude and, and really a whole wellness model. Yeah. And that really, that's my curiosity. The power of love and saying love can make us in its extreme forms. Love can leave us failing because the people we love are failing. Okay. Mm. I can tolerate Mm. that. That's so much easier than saying there's something wrong with me for the love I gave. And, and you're right, Andrew, I'm not standing here by myself. I mean, you and I have, we're big Brene Brown fans, right? Yes. I'm a Stan Tatkin fan. Sure. Um, Sue Johnson. I mean, the voice of our generation, not the early boomers, but the voice of the later boomer and the X generation is about attachment. And what I've done with Prodependence is take Brene and Stan and Sue Johnson on, and say, okay, let's take all that beliefs, all those beliefs in this situation with this population and see how it works. Mm. And it works, I think, pretty beautifully. 
I couldn't agree more. And I think part of what I, I really want to emphasize is that it sounds like you come from a place of how do we cultivate love? How can love be at the center rather than establishing boundaries and distance and, and ways of, of, of looking at trauma? And, and one thing I love about Marty Seligman and the whole positive psychology movement is that it's not about what's wrong. It's about what's right. Yes. It's about what do we wake, what's a reason to wake up in the morning? And these are the questions that I think get overlooked sometimes. And I think in your model, it really brings it back to the conversation in such a beautiful way. Well, Andrew, I don't, here's the bottom line about that. I don't think that anyone stays with someone to act out the trauma from their childhood. I just don't. I think they may end up acting out the trauma from their childhood because of the nature of what's going on in the relationship, but that's not why they're there. And that's what codependency says. They're there mm -hmm. because they're in love. They're mm -hmm. there because they're attached. They're there because there was something there with that person that made them connect. And that's the part that I want to focus on, not the things that have happened along the way, but how, where is this love and can we find it and use it as a source for healing rather than pulling these people apart? Mm -hmm. and, and I think you kind of said it, but I'm going to repeat it because it feels so important is that when we're talking about couples, we're talking about a huge growth opportunity. And if we steer in the direction of some of the older beliefs, like taking a trauma history as an example, that can be a missed opportunity. Or if we send a teenager out on the street because he's using and, and we don't want him in our home, that's a missed opportunity. But if you're able to say, huh, how can we all grow together? And how can this be a time of, of really looking at our own stuff and having honest conversations from a place of, of love and, and attachment and you know, feeling that sense of, of hope that I think you're, you're really honing in on today. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for understanding this. You know, bottom line is that, that addiction is hard enough, but watching someone you love fall apart in front of you and there's nothing you can do about it and they just get sicker and sicker, that's hard enough. Why do we need to blame anybody for having lived through that situation? Why don't we just say, let me hold out my hand to you and celebrate you for having been through this. And then let's make it better together. For sure. And, and I think, you know, this, that I, I used to work in hospice and one of the things in, in hospice was how the nurses would clean and, and help a wound heal. And, and obviously you don't pour salt in a wound. You have to irrigate it and clean it and, and give it the right medication and put a, an open bandage, not a closed bandaid, but an open bandage that gets changed sometimes multiple times a day in order for the wound to really heal from the inside out. And it's the same thing that I think you're saying today is that how do we help those wounds heal, you know, rather than, you know, pour salt in the wound and make, make things worse. Um, I want to keep families together. Yeah. And what the research tells us is that families who struggle with addiction will be more likely to see recovery happen if the family stays together. And mm. so how can I help the family stay together by everybody feeling like they have a part in this, but it's nobody's fault. Mm. Absolutely. Well, on that note, that was a beautiful conversation. I'm, I'm inspired sitting here and, and I'm so glad we got to spend the time together. So Rob, where can people find you? Where can they find your book and, and how can they stay in touch with you? Well, I'm not hard to find, Andrew. If you type in the word Dr. Rob Weiss and sex, I will come up because I've been dealing with sexual issues for so long. As you said, I wrote a whole bunch of books. 
But to directly contact me, you can find me at rob at seekingintegrity. That's one word, seekingintegrity.com. Um, and then, you know, I'm online. I volunteer a couple of days a week doing free seminars and all that stuff you can find if you write me or uh, there's the podcast, Sex, Love and Addiction. And thank you, Andrew. There is Prodependence, which is a movement that is beginning to sweep the world. And I'm just so incredibly grateful. And I'm incred incredibly grateful to have you spend the time today. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Talk All to right. you soon. Take good care. Thank you for listening today. It was so wonderful sharing the time with my very talented colleague and friend, Dr. Rob Weiss, and discussing this really vital topic that affects so many of those who are dealing with out of control sexual behavior. In this podcast, we took a closer look at Pro-Dependence, also the name of Rob's latest book. Be sure to give us a five-star rating, and we welcome your comments. And also, you can share us on Spotify as well. And if there are things that you want us to discuss in the future, just, just let us know. And I do look forward to sharing more and more with you in, in future podcasts. And thanks again for being here today.